This week, we join with churches all over the nation in recognizing Sanctity of Life Sunday. We believe that all people have value because they are made in the image of God, and this holds true from conception to death. But many times, Christians may find themselves too focused on one aspect of being pro-life to the neglect of others. This week, the local organization New Life Family Services will be ministering to us by sharing their approach to being holistically pro-life, meeting human needs from the womb to the tomb. Let's join with Sojourn now. As Craig mentioned, uh, this is Sanctity of Life Sunday across the nation, and we're going to be honoring that today. We're giving the whole sermon slot to some people from New Life Family Ministries. Um, I actually took a 12-week course at New Life Family Ministries uh, probably about 10, 15 years ago. I was hoping to volunteer, and so I learned everything, all the ins and outs of their organization. I have to say I'm so impressed and continue to be so impressed with this organization. Uh, They're going to talk to us about what it means to be holistically pro-life and how we can get involved uh, in that whole message of hope to everyone, whatever life stage that you're at. Um, as Craig said, we, we want justice and, and honoring for every single human being on the face of this earth. And so um, it's, it's so, so excited to have uh, them here, Tanya and uh, Jenna, and then our, our own Venetia, who is now volunteering with them, are going to be sharing a little bit. So I'll introduce Jenna Holst. Uh, she is... Uh, I'm sure I get this right. The Church Relations Program Coordinator, did I get that right? <laughs> For New Life Family Ministries. And she's going to come and speak uh, about what it means to be holistically pro life. And then we'll have uh, a f- the other two share uh, following that. So, Jenna, let's welcome Jenna Holst. I'm really honored to be here this morning, just representing New Life and the work that we do and getting to speak about what it means to approach pro-life work in a holistic way. Um, and before I even jump introduce, into introducing myself a little bit, I wanna first acknowledge that this Sunday can be hard, um, just depending on your story um, and how it might intersect with this. Um, so before I wanna get started in that, um, I wanna say that we will be speaking out about abortion. We have someone here that's gonna be sharing their abortion story. Um, and so at any point today during the message, if you feel like you need to step out, I just want to give you permission to do that and just say that that's appropriate to take care of yourself or do what you need to do. Um, and for others of you, you may have children here and you might not be ready to, to talk about this with them. Again, totally appropriate. We get it. Um, so with that being said, I want to open us in prayer. Would you just pray with me? Father, I first just want to thank you that you know each of our stories. You know the families we came from. You know our political leanings. You know our experiences with pregnancy and with abortion. And you know each and every thought that we have had today, we'll have tomorrow, we had yesterday. And knowing this, we just ask you, Holy Spirit, for your help. We ask you to come and just minister to our hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear you, Lord. Um, teach us how to love like you. Teach us how to see each and every person in your image and with your eyes, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So my name is Jenna. I work as the church relations coordinator at New Life. I've been there for about two and a half years. And I get to do really fun things like this. I get to partner with local churches, local pastors. Um, and it's, it's just truly an honor to talk about um, these topics with the church. A little bit about me. I grew up in a really small town in Iowa, just about 7,000 people. We are known for our churches, we're known for our Dutch heritage, and we're known for our smells, which our town just smells like manure. Like people come and visit, you can just smell it right away. So you're all welcome to come. Be really fun. I know I've sold it to you now. Um, when I was 18, I started at Bethel University and um, I studied music and I studied biblical and theological studies. And it's also at Bethel where I met my husband, Isaac, and I always just like cringe a little bit saying that because it's so stereotypical to go to a Christian college and meet your husband, but that's what we did. We got married right after we went there. Um, and I am grateful for that. I love Isaac for so many reasons, but um, near the top has got to be that we really love strategy board games and really nerdy ones, okay? Thank you, thank you. Sometimes I feel alone in a room on that one. Um, <laughs> our favorite right now is Seven Wonders, and we love playing Seven Wonders with all of the expansions. Yes! Okay, we'll connect after service, how about? Um, <laughs> and we love that there's all these different strategies, and you don't have to wait for people to take your turn because they're all, we're all playing at once, and so you don't have to practice any patience. It's, it's awesome. So um, we struggled just a little bit finding people to play with us. So for the past few years, we've been teaching Isaac's cousins this game at Christmas, okay? And they have kind of a unique like family situation where for the past 10 years, they've had one person graduate high school every year. So when we get together, kind of the older five hang out and the younger five hang out, and we always kind of gather the older ones and play Seven Wonders. It's a dream, it's a dream. So um, each time we play, um, we haven't had any issues of like inclusion in this. And we always feel like, you know, we're going to invite the older people because we can play these high caliber in-depth board games and the younger kids can't. And last year, the youngest cousin comes up. She's pretty bold, which I love about her. And she's like, can I play? You never asked me to play. And we were like, well, you know, our game's pretty full. We already have enough people. And she goes, typical. You always ask the oldest to come and you never invite the younger people. And in the moment, we didn't really pay much mind. We were pretty focused in on the game. And then the Lord kind of just like kept bringing it up, you know, how he does that. So we're driving home from the family gathering and we both just spoke out, like my husband and I, we just feel convicted, like like the Lord just brought this up, um, that her words kind of stuck with us because they were true. Um, and we'd, we'd kind of played favorites for years and we hadn't seen this cousin as able to play. Um, so the story we're reading today from Acts is about favoritism. It's not the typical scripture um, we normally kind of cover on Sanctity of Life Sunday, but it hasn't been a typical year. So I figured why not mix it up a little bit. So we're talking about um, the scripture from Acts 10. And I think what it represents is this idea of the sanctity or the set-apartness of every human life. It's an integral and pivotal part of the gospel as it speaks to who gets to hear the gospel message, who it's actually for. 
So this story is written by Luke in the book of Acts, and I think it could be a movie. It's the way it's written just scene by scene is, is so cool. It shows and describes the separate characters and then brings them together in this climax. Um, and Bible scholars over time have actually split up this, sort, this story into seven different scenes. We're just kind of going to be covering the first four scenes today. I'm going to kind of summarize the first couple. We're going to read the climax of the story. But I do encourage you this week, if you're able, to read all 66 verses. It's the longest narrative in Acts. And I think for a reason. I think Luke really cared about this story. I think um, it was highlighted to him. It's important to him. So read Acts 10 sometime this week, okay? All right, so scene one begins with Cornelius. And Cornelius lives in Caesarea, which was the center of Roman administration and culture, meaning it was predominantly Gentile. So the Jews historically hated Caesarea and they would often exclude it as even being a part of Judea. Cornelius is a centurion, which means he's likely quite wealthy, quite influential. Nominally, centurions were in charge of about 100 soldiers. So he just had a lot of influence. Um, and they were normally not Christians or followers of the way of Jesus, but Luke states that Cornelius was devout, he was God-fearing, he prayed regularly and gave to the needy. Um, sounds like a pretty awesome guy to me. And in scene one, Cornelius receives a vision. So Cornelius is praying at around three in the afternoon and he gets this vision of this angel that visits him. And the angel delivers this message from the Lord um, asking him to summon a few of his men to go to Joppa and to get Peter, who we know by this point in Acts quite well, who's staying with a tanner there. So after the angel leaves, Cornelius immediately obeys and he summons a couple of his men and sends them off to Joppa. Scene two, we have Peter. Peter's also praying on the roof. He falls into a trance and he also receives this really weird, fun vision. So he gets this vision of this sheet coming down from heaven to earth. And on this sheet are a ton of animals. There's four-footed animals, birds, reptiles. And something significant about these animals are that some of them are clean, are marked kosher in Jewish culture, and some of them are marked unclean. And Peter hears this voice saying, God, uh, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no. Um, he is never and will never eat anything unclean. And if I were Peter, I feel like I would, I would almost feel like this was a test of my faith. Like, you're testing me to see if I'll obey you or not. But the voice responds again, saying, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Get up and eat. And this happens three times. Okay, so this should be kind of something Peter's familiar with at this point. If you remember when he denies Jesus three times, the rooster crows, it's this whole thing. So... I think, I mean, I imagine that this kind of light goes off in his head, like, okay, this is significant. The Lord is saying the same thing three times. Um, and so he comes out of the vision and he hears the Holy Spirit tell him to go downstairs and that there are men waiting for him. So he does. And naturally, in the fun movie form, these are the same three men that Cornelius just sent. It's so cool. Um, if you've had experiences with the Lord like this, you know, just, it's not a coincidence, right? And Peter invites these men in 
and they tell him that Cornelius has sent for him, and the next day they leave for Caesarea. So this is where we're going to pick up, verse 24. Hopefully you can see it. If not, you know, feel free to join us in your Bible. So they arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, stand up. I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. And Peter told them, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to even associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. Cornelius replied, four days ago, I was praying in my house about this same time and three, at three o'clock in the afternoon. And suddenly a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. He told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying in the home of Simon a Tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once and it was good of you to come. And now we are all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. So there's this room full of Gentiles. Probably many of them don't believe in God. They're not God-fearing like Cornelius is. And Peter replies, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of the good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. So there it is, the climax of the story. It continues. Peter just shares the gospel in a beautiful way. And then people in that room receive the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues and they are followers of Jesus. It's so cool. Um, but the climax is that Peter has this revelation, this realization, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. And essentially this big shift has taken place in Peter's thinking and his understanding of the gospel. For he now realizes that no longer are the typical Jewish cultural distinctions among people significant. They've been rendered void. This is a huge deal. <laughs> so before this, I mean, Peter's been around, Jesus was crucified, buried, he rose from the dead. He experienced the good news, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, but he hasn't understood that the gospel is for all people yet. I think sometimes we think like, you know, they just knew everything right away, but it was a process for Peter. It was a process for him to understand this. And a question we always need to ask ourselves is, is this relevant for us? Um, the commentary I primarily used for today was um, written by Ajit Fernando, and he answers this question really well, so I'm just going to read it. He said, is this relevant to us today? After all, most Christians today are Gentiles, so the specific issue facing the church or the Jewish people in Acts does not apply to us. While the specific issue may not apply to us, the general principle most certainly does, that God does not show favoritism, that is, in the kingdom of God, we may not categorize people according to their background. And I would add, we can't categorize people according to whether they're born or unborn. We can't categorize them according to their age, to their color of their skin, to their political leanings, to the sins they've committed, to what they're able to do or what they're not able to do. 
Um, as I observe our world today, I see a, a need for this. I think as we even think through our last year, I see a need for this shift, for the repentance um, from and confession of our prejudices. And I, I really think Peter is a beautiful example of this. When the first thing he does when he gets that platform is he confesses that he was wrong and that um, he understands something more clearly now. Um, and I just think, man, it teaches something to us that even a mature Christian leader, mature Christian who's been walking with the Lord for a long time may occasionally need a paradigm shift, right? In order to come into alignment with God's thinking and his, his perspective and how healing that must have been for, for Cornelius, for the Gentiles in the room that were walking with God and had not been accepted into the family of God. So I believe that this story relates deeply to the work we do at New Life. Not on a surface level, it doesn't really, but on a deep level, I think it really does. And the biggest thing is that it points out this temptation for us to categorize people um, and devalue them based on the character's narrative, the language, the culture is using, I mean. Um, there's almost a temptation to de-sanctify people based on what culture is saying. So I wanna just briefly highlight some points in scripture where I believe the sanctity of life is affirmed even in the womb. Right away in Genesis 1, I, I mean, I feel like you just hit a lot of these, Pastor Craig, but Genesis 1, God spoke that he created humankind in his own image thus an image with utmost divine value. And in Psalm 139, it speaks of how God gave thought to creation before we were even formed in the, the womb. That tells me even before conception, right? That God has a purpose and a plan for each life. Um, in Exodus 22, we see the punishment against the harm of a pregnant woman is more severe and as Moses put, puts it, he uses the word life for life. Um, one of my favorite passages, which I just learned about within this last year, relating to the unborn being affirmed as a person in scripture is in Luke 1 and in Luke 2. So in Luke 1, I don't know if you remember, but usually we just start in Luke 2, so we don't get to read these stories all the time. But Elizabeth is carrying John the Baptist in her body, in her womb, and she feels her unborn baby literally leap inside of her. And the word in Greek that's used for baby here is brephos. And then in Luke 2, when the angels are speaking to the shepherds, they tell them to go and find a baby, brephos, wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. It's the same word. Um, and this is already referring to a very much already born baby Jesus. Um, and I just love that even in scripture, a baby in the womb is equated to a baby outside of it. What we saw a few minutes ago in the story of Peter and Cornelius is that God desires for all human life to be included in the promise of the gospel. And what these verses I highlighted say is that all life includes unborn babies, but all life also includes more than unborn babies. Um, which is why at New Life, we've taken a really holistic approach to the ministry that we do um, as a pro-life organization. And um, Peter, 
showed favoritism to the Jews, and by doing so, he limited the Gentiles from hearing the gospel um, and experiencing the abundant life that Jesus offers. And I just want to ask us today, is it possible that we also show favoritism when we limit our value for life to only certain groups? It's definitely true for me. I, we were actually in our small group this past week, and I just felt so much conviction even on how I've been grouping political groups. Um, and I think we do this all the time, kind of when it comes to pro-life issues. So I want to give just some examples of that. First, some people show favoritism to the mother by saying things like, it's your body carrying this child, and so you can do what you want with it and therefore rejecting the value of the child's body. Some people show favoritism to the child and don't provide services or support for mothers who do choose to parent. And the sole priority can so quickly become that the child is just born um, without worrying about the quality of life that the mom and the child have even a year later. Some people show favoritism toward adoptive parents without thinking through if an adoption is really the best thing for the potential adoptee. And some people show favoritism toward lesser sins than abortion, which we know is not true. just want to emphasize this. Um, and we treat abortion sometimes like it's unforgivable. And there are so many ways that those of us in the church can fall into favoritism on pro-life issues. And I'm kind of focusing in here on babies, the unborn moms, obviously this is way bigger, right? Um, and I just, I just invite you to even ask the Lord, like, where do you want me to focus? At New Life, we feel called to focus on pregnancy, um, but maybe you feel called to honor the lives of those our society has dubbed as um, unable to contribute well or um, too old <laughs> to contribute. So I just invite you to keep thinking through that. Um, all of these thoughts I listed above, like loving babies, loving mothers, and speaking the truth about abortion are good. They're good thoughts. But I think that the enemy can really deceive us to become so focused in on one issue, so narrow, that we lose our ability to see other people who also need the love and the abundant life that Jesus offers. Um, and I think Peter, I'm comforted that Peter fought those same temptations. I'm comforted that he was in the same spiritual battle that we're in and that God met him and God spoke to him and God didn't leave him in that place. So at New Life, we seek to uphold a broad culture for life and provide holistic care for our clients, for the unborn, for children, for mothers, for fathers, and for families. And I had my coworker create this little web. I like drew it out on a notebook paper and she made it happen, it was amazing. Um, and her work doesn't just touch the life of the child. It touches the lives of all those that are involved in a pregnancy, all of the people listed up here. I mean, it's not even everybody that we get to have contact with, but they're all image bearers, um, all deserving to know the gospel, to have access to the abundant life of Jesus. And I always say to people that what I love working um, what I love about working for New Life the most is that no matter what someone chooses, we have a route for them. Um, and we, of course, we desire that they would choose life, but we desire 
that they would experience life abundant. So before you get to hear the real highlight of the morning, um, we have Tanya here to share with you and gotten to hear her story a few times. And it's an honor to hear it. Um, I just want to make sure I touch on what we do as an organization. So New Life has been around since 1973, offering help and hope to those facing an unplanned pregnancy. And we do this through three service areas. The first is our New Life Adoptions Agency. We're a licensed adoption agency. Um, and we serve both birth families and adoptive families through a unique two-worker model, which helps keep us unbiased. Um, second, we have four first care pregnancy centers with a fifth location coming this year, hopefully, in the Phillips neighborhood of South Minneapolis. One of our current centers is actually less than a mile down the road in Prospect Park neighborhood. So even as you drive home today, I invite you to just check it out. It's on the corner there called First Care. And these are kind of our storefront locations where we serve those facing unplanned pregnancies. So in these centers, we have social workers on staff who can connect our clients with community resources. They help them apply for grants and rental assistance. Um, we have nurses who provide pregnancy tests, ultrasounds, STD testing. And actually, our largest program is our parenting education program that wraps around families both while they're pregnant through age five. So we have had some clients in the program for 10 years because you know they keep having babies and we just get to walk with them. Um, and that program provides both education, kind of emotional support, um, as well as material support. Um, we give away over 70,000 diapers a year, so through that program, which is pretty awesome. So we know, um, yeah, that when women are supported in a holistic way, that they're much more likely to choose life. Um, our, finally, our third program is our Conquerors um, Abortion Recovery Program. That's a safe and confidential place for those hurting from a past abortion. And the statistics are that one in four women will have an abortion by the age of 45. And about 36% of those women were attending church at that time. So that, that has totally changed the way that I talk to a room of people. Um, yeah, so I encourage you that if you or someone you know is hurting from a past abortion, that you would get involved with Conquerors and find a safe place to heal. So today we are blessed to be able to hear from Tanya, um, who has experienced the healing impact of our Conquerors program. So would you join me in welcoming her? Good morning, and thank you for uh, having me here today. So I'll give you a quick where I am now, and then I'm going to take you back many, many moons. Um, I am <laughs> a wife and a mom of three kids. I have a 17-year-old, a 12-year-old, and an 8-year-old. I homeschooled up until this year. My husband needed me to go back to work, so I work at a private school in North Branch, Minnesota. That's way north. And um, all three of my children attend. And so I still teach them, but I teach uh, uh, K through 11th up there. And my husband and I will be celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. <laughs> right. You know, every time I give this talk, I realize how old I actually am. Whoa, okay. So I graduated in 1997. So we're going to go way back to high school. And, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And so I actually became sexually active starting at age 15. 
And my senior year of high school, I met the future father of my baby. I had graduated high school in 97, and that year I actually didn't go to high school. We had something called PSEO, and I had earned my national EMT, emergency medical technician, basic certification, and I was going to continue into college to get my paramedic. However, that November, so graduated 97, June, somewhere in there. Now we're moving forward a little bit to November, and I discovered I was pregnant. I'd been dating this gentleman my entire senior year of high school, and we found out. I uh, found out in a Target bathroom, actually. Brad and I decided that we weren't going to tell anyone until after the holidays, and we ended up talking to his parents first because we decided they were less scary than my mom and dad. So we let them know, and they were disappointed but supportive and encouraging. His mom ended up getting me a book called uh, What to Expect When You're Expecting. I'm terrified of my mom. I love her, but at that time, I just I grew up in an Eastern Asian home, and... I was about to bring dishonor upon my family, so I waited till the day after Christmas to speak with her. As you can imagine, she was disappointed. She says to me, you're the first one that's supposed to go to college. You're supposed to have a better life than I had. You're supposed to be better than me, because see, she'd had me at 17. And so all of that language happened. Everything that I kind of expected her to say to me happened, but then she kind of surprised me. I expected her to say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We'll be there for you. We'll support you. And instead, she looks at me and she says, you're not going to keep this baby. You will get an abortion, and you will not tell your father about it. I walked away that day a little scared. I informed the father, we discussed. He was in agreement with my mom. And so on December 31st, 1997, Brad and I drove to the clinic. I walked through a few doors that had bulletproof glass. I went up to the counter. I paid my $20 copay. And I remember feeling incredibly anxious. I ended up calling my mom from a phone in the waiting area. There's a lot of young faces, so I'm gonna explain this real quick. There was a phone that was attached to something, and there was a cord, and you couldn't bring it anywhere. You had to stand right there. <laughs> Ask your mom, she'll show you pictures. Okay, so I call my mom, and she's at work, and I tell her, Mom, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can move forward with this. And I said, please, please tell me I don't have to do this. And my mom's crying on the phone, and she says, oh, sweetheart, you are so strong. You can do this, and if you do this, life will go back to normal. It'll be like nothing ever happened. And so I sat there for a moment, just sobbing, my boyfriend standing behind me, rubbing my shoulders, and I cradled that phone, and I rocked back and forth, and then I just, I hung it up, and we moved forward, and I, I went through with it. When all was said and done, 
Brad and I drove back to my home. We went down to my room. We laid on the bed and held each other for two hours because we just couldn't stop crying. We didn't say anything, just cried. Finally, he fell asleep and I got up, I went to the bathroom, wanted to clean myself up. I remember I was washing my hands, kind of washed my face and I looked up into the mirror and the person reflecting back at me was so strange, I didn't recognize the reflection that I physically jumped back from that mirror because the person I was that morning was not the girl staring back at me that moment. I remember feeling like a part of me, a piece of me had died. Something kind of snapped in me. A couple weeks had gone by and I was still feeling anxious and waiting for that moment for life to return back to normal, like everyone said it would be. But it didn't. So I got, walked out of my bedroom one morning and went upstairs to my mother's room. She was in there, it was just her and I in the house. And I said, Mom, I don't think it was just tissue in there. I feel like, I feel like we did something wrong. And I'm starting to cry and I'm looking for answers and my mom starts to cry. And she looks up at me and she says, you know, if you would have kept the baby, I would have helped you. And I remember, I just, I, I sat there. And I've never felt this kind of rage before in my life. I was immediately angry and disappointed and frustrated. But I love my mom. And I could not take that out on her. And so I captured all of these emotions and I just shoved them down as far as I possibly could. And I left the room having not said anything. Shortly after this, so I'm in college now, Brad and I, we broke up. The damage was just too great. But time marches on, yes? Life moves on. And so I graduate from my program. I actually changed from paramedic and I became a medical assistant. I was working full time. And I remember I decided that since I made that decision and since life was supposed to be normal, I was going to force myself to be normal. And I was going to force myself to be the most perfect version of me. And so I became, on the outside, the most perfect daughter, the best employee to work with, not to toot my own horn, never miss a day of work, never call in sick, don't complain, make everything look perfect on the outside, and ignore everything happening that I had shoved months ago away and out of my mind as if nothing had happened. But you can only do that for so long. Remember, I still don't have Jesus. There's no praying. There's no reaching out. So I discovered alcohol. And so starting Friday after work through Sunday, I would drink 
to the point of oblivion and blacking out. There are 52 weekends that I remember nothing, a solid year. I remember, I just, alcohol was the only thing that kept all of those emotions at bay. And you know you have a drinking problem when the people you're partying with hold an intervention for you. And I remember being angry, like, excuse me? You guys are the ones that were pirating together. And I was so angry and I was so mad and I'm just spewing them. I'm, I'm so angry, I'm spitting everywhere. And my good friend Tom stands up and he says, exactly. If we're the ones telling you, you have a problem, you need to stop and think about that. How do you argue that? And I did, and eventually, I get help, I become sober, and I stay clean. Not long after this year of partying and drinking and not remembering the weekends, I met my future husband, Aubrey. And he's a Christian, so was his family. And I remember they would invite me to church and I'd politely decline. Because I really felt like there is a God, there is no way he would love someone like me. But his family faithfully pursued me, which really was God, right? Working in them to pursue me. And so on January 19, 2001, I became a follower of Christ. I submitted myself to him and longed for him to be Lord of my life. And that September, Aubrey and I became married. And I want to tell you that that initial meeting with Jesus, I even started giving my testimony to churches quite regularly. Now, not about the abortion. You see, I was a practicing witch before all of that. That's a whole different thing. But anyways, so I, I spoke on that. Never mentioning that one thing. And that's how you know I wasn't healed. So here I am married. I have my first daughter, Kylie, who, like I said, is now 17. Then we have my second daughter, Emma, who's now 12. It wasn't until her birth that I realized I never addressed this secret that I had kept. I wouldn't even talk to God about it, even though cognitively I know he knows. But it was one of those if the window is up in a car and people do weird things because they think you can't see them, but you can because it's a window, that was me. Like, I'm just going to put this window up, God. You, you can't see that. You can't touch me because there's no way you'll forgive that. And it was with Emma that I discovered during that time I needed to address this one thing that I just couldn't seem to face. And a girlfriend of mine told me about Conqueror's through New Life Family Services. At that time, it was a 12-week program. And I went through it, and I discovered that, nope, God loves me, he can forgive that. But he wanted me to walk that out with him and find that healing and hope in him and not in my ability to heal myself. I leave you today with my favorite scripture that I discovered during this time. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Proverbs chapter three, five through six. Thank you. Um, well, thank you so much, Tanya, for sharing that, being vulnerable and um, just, I just, um, I'm always so, I don't know why, so like it just blown away when people um, share stories like this and just the, how God can take all these things and just fix them and make them beautiful. So, um I just wanted to introduce myself, if anybody doesn't know me. Um, my name is Venetia, and my family and I have been attending Sojourn here for about five years, a little over five years. Um, and um, I'm up here today because I have recently um, joined New Life as the parent program manager. So um, if you remember, one of the programs that was shown up on the slide before um, is parenting education. So that's kind of my new thing right now, I guess, that I'm supposed to be doing. Um, so a little bit about how that happened and how God brought me to this place. Um, I used to be a preschool teacher. I love children. I, I think that's just something that God has put in my heart. Um, and a f it was before my son was born. So this was, this probably was about 16 years ago. I, I was teaching preschool, but I wanted like a little extra side job. And um, I was always interested in psychology too. So the University of Minnesota, as you know, has frequent um, studies that they do like with children and families. And I don't know if you've seen those posted, but um, you know, they'll, it, it, it can occur in different ways. I did one with um, my kids when I was little. Uh, and it's just, um, this one, this particular one was, um, it's kind of funny how we have to spend all this money to figure out like that, um, what kids need. But the study was aimed at um, trying to discover whether or not or how much a parent's influence in their child's life would lead to, you know, their their child's future success. So my part in this was we had parents that had been contacted by the Minneapolis public school system, um, mostly North Minneapolis parents, but a few South, and they were invited to um, have someone like me enter their home and spend about a 90 minutes with them, talking to them about um, their parenting style. Uh, we did like depression inventories, things like that. But the main focus was really I would bring a box of toys and um, I just invited them to play with their child. And then I would um, document how they would play, if they would play, what they would say, how they said it. And that would all go back into the database for you know, people to access, like that's how Head Start gets funding, studies like this. So um, it was during this time that God really started working in my heart about how, because like, I had this huge love for kids, but I would go into these homes and some would be great, 
but the vast majority of them were really lacking. And it would break my heart to see um, just, just kind of the level of brokenness in these families that I was working with. Not just, you know, like for the child's sake, but for the parents too. Like some of them just didn't know what to do or how to talk to their kid or... Um, I even had some where there was literally no interaction for that entire time. Parents sat on the couch, the child played together, I said goodbye, and that was it. So it was sad, yeah. Um, so I think that was a way that God started sort of opening my eyes to, like it's not just about the child. There's, there's so much more here. It's about the family. It's about the parent. And um, you know, these parents probably didn't have parents to model this for them either. They're coming from broken places too. So I had, you know, just kind of had a burden for that, but I was still teaching and I was raising my own kids. They were little at the time, but I had this feeling that I was supposed to do something more with that, um, that teaching wasn't the end for me. And, um, uh, like what year? I don't remember that was, but I went back to college and I got a degree in psychology and counseling and I didn't know what that would look like. I didn't know why that was kind of, I just didn't know. It's just kind of like this, you know, this was the path I chose and I didn't know what God was going to do with that. But, um, after I graduated, I was employed for, or employed with the CAP agency in um, Dakota County as a family educator. I was like, oh, this is it. This is where God was leading me all this time. This is what I'm supposed to do. And in that capacity, um, it was home visiting again. And it was, but it was early Head Start, so prenatal to age three. And it, there was a shift for me because I had been teaching so long. It was always like, you know, um, directed toward the child, but with this position, it was really about the parent and um, working with the parent so the parent could then connect with their child. And um, I was really excited about this opportunity. And then about, well, it's kind of around time that COVID hit, and I didn't know if it was COVID, you know, it, it makes you feel weird, everything's different. I just started feeling this like unsettledness in my spirit. And I didn't know what that was about. And I'm talking to my husband, like, isn't this like, I thought this is where God wanted me. I don't know why I don't feel peace right now. Um, and then I had a friend reach out to me who works at New Life. And she's like, I think you need to apply for this position. And I wasn't looking for employment. I was just sort of like, you know, praying to God about changing my heart and being content in my, you know, in my employment. And I looked at it and I was like, this looks really, really great. Um, so I applied and I was hired and I started in September. Um, and it's been amazing. I just always love new life. I love like how Jenna was sharing about how it's, you know, oftentimes in pro-life, um, ministries that focus really is just on the child. But we want to make sure that our, our families feel like they're loved and they're just as important. You know, we, so we walk them through whatever they are going through. There's no judgment on whatever decisions that they make. We just, you know, earnestly pray for them and that God would just lead them. And sometimes, I mean, I've been in some of the 
I've been doing a lot of coverage in the U office, and we have women come in that get an ultrasound and they leave, and they're not choosing life. But we want them to know that where we were there and that we love them regardless of their decision and that if they want to come back and they want to process something or if there's something in the future that happens, another pregnancy, maybe they'll remember us and maybe they'll remember how they felt loved and cared for even though they, you know, they didn't make the you know, right decision. So, um, yeah, I'm just really happy to be a part of New Life. I'm excited to see what God is going to do. Super excited about the Phillips location. I'm just so thankful for that. Um, but I just wanted to share a couple of ways that you can get involved if you are interested. The first one, of course, is to pray. Um, pray for New Life. Pray for organizations like New Life. Just pray for people who... Um, who you might not even know, you know, they're nameless or faceless, but pray that um, people facing pregnancies that are not planned, that they would they find somewhere to go, a person that would reach out to them and just love them and walk with them along that journey. Um, oh, good, that's up there. So, yeah, so the prayer, um, you can do... You can become a prayer partner, and you can see just text to that number there on the screen. And oftentimes, um, is it Jenna? They'll get like real-time prayer requests, right? So it's happened where I've been in the office sometimes when we've had a client leave, and the social worker will come and send out an email real quick asking for prayer about a certain situation. So you can sign up to be alerted to those sorts of things and join us in prayer for that. Um, then you can also volunteer. We could not do what we do without the volunteers, especially the parent program. I'm so thankful for the people who commit their time to us and to these families. Um, we have a great need for, for parent coaches. We train you. Um, if you speak Spanish, that's even better. That would be awesome. Um, and um, of course, we have you know the location down the street, but we also have Richfield and um, St. Paul, and then the Phillips location coming, and hopefully the end of this year. So um, we also have volunteer opportunities for medical volunteers. Um, you could teach a class if you have like some knowledge on parenting or something like that that you'd like to share, you feel God is leading you. Um, sometimes we just need people to bundle diapers. We give away a lot of diapers. And just packing them up and tying them with a ribbon and you know, we distribute those to our our centers, that can be a way to do it too. There's there's many things that doesn't have to be like a long term commitment. It can be like a one time thing too. So um then also, of course, giving. So you can sign up to be a life sustainer, which is a monthly giver or a one-time donation as well. Um, all of those things are options for, for how to partner with us. So um, I just want to invite you to consider how God might be speaking to you right now about ways that you can honor life in all ways or in all capacities and... Um, you know, we don't always need it to be through new life, too. It could be 
babysitting for a neighbor or inviting somebody over for a meal or doing a home repair, you know, just helping people get through life. Um, so thank you. Um, I believe we'll be in the back if you have any questions or you want to talk to us any further about new life. And I just thank you so much for letting us be here. Thank you. So Keith will probably bring a more general closer to this, but I, I wanted to point out one thing among all these things that struck me. Venetia, when you told your story, so I, uh, you know, I'm the pastor here, but I have a part-time gig uh, teaching Bible over at North Central. And, you know, of course we have people like Evan and Grace that are going to be preparing for traditional full-time ministry. But one of the things that always struck me when I did uh, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament survey course, be a lot of students there that were not quote-unquote called a full-time ministry. We're all in ministry, right? And one of the things that we desperately need in our society is people like Venetia, maybe like you as a volunteer, who really have biblical truth, biblical wisdom integrated. We talk about the research, you did all the home visits, all of that. It reminded me of my education days, uh, you know, at the University of Minnesota. But those that we sometimes have a stereotype of ministry, holistic, whole families, whole families is the need of our nation right now. Whole families. And so what a powerful thing. God may be equipping you, and you're like, well, I could do that. I could, I could help. And you are, that's ministry, right? That is powerful ministry. Um, yeah, I think that's all I'll say now. But yeah, God, God bless all of you. Thank you for your vulnerability. I've, I've had past, well, anyway, yeah. I have other things I could say. Yeah, you go, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Jenna, for sharing that scripture in Acts 10 is just amazingly appropriate for um, today and for next week and for the rest of our lives to include everyone, make no distinctions. Um, thank you, Tanya, for being able to share your story, um, to be vulnerable for that and to um, give people hope. Maybe they've gone through a similar thing or maybe they know someone that has. God takes us wherever we're at, whatever we've done, and um, he brings healing and wholeness. Thank you, Venetia, for sharing uh, your story also and um, just practical ways that God has called you into this. And uh, thank you for serving for such an amazing organization. Um, as Craig said earlier, uh, God shows no favoritism uh, he wants us to love every person in every environment and every situation. We are all made in his image. So the baby in the womb, or maybe the African-American that's being roughed up by someone or berated. Um, in past years, uh, slavery in the United States, where, where certain classes of people were, were designated as subhuman. It's, it's, it's the same story over and over again. In the womb, you're, you're designated as subhuman. Therefore, it's okay to take your life. You're a different race than me, so then you're, sub, you're just a little less human than I am. Some human make, being makes that designation over a category of people, and, and abuse and violence is therefore legitimized. 
Uh, and God just cuts through all of that, saying, I love you just as you are. And we, he wants us to do the same. So I encourage you, think about praying, think about giving, think about volunteering in some small way where you can help in a small practical way, bundling diapers. Uh, can people give clothes or, or diapers as well? Yeah, so you can give gifts of money or gifts. And also just to bring it home for us, um, you know, when there's a baby dedication here, we all stand up and we say, we want to take care of you. We're going to support you. God wants us to do that in practical ways too. Like the nursery needs a lot of new volunteers, especially in your COVID. Um, it's a wonderful opportunity to give to these little kids and, and play with them, learn how to play with them. Some parents, they never learned how to play with their kids. We'll teach you how to play with kids, okay? <laughs> if you're a college student, you're afraid of kids come down there, we'll teach you how to play with them. They're just amazing. They're just so fun. Um, so volunteer for the nursery, volunteer in preschool. Uh, maybe that neighbor of yours that's a single mom that's, that's trying to make ends meet. Can we be the body of Christ? Can we be the fragrance of Christ wherever we are?